0: CD 4 I won't forget the look on the Reverend Wellager's face in a hurry, said Arthur gloomily. I've been going to that temple for thirty years. I was respected in the community. Now, if I even think of setting foot in a religious establishment, I get a pain all down my leg. Yes, but there was no need for him to say what he said when you pushed the lid off, said Dorin, and him a priest, too. They shouldn't know those kind of words. I enjoyed that temple, said Arthur wistfully. It was something to do on a Wednesday. It dawned on Windlepoons that Doreen had miraculously acquired the ability to use her W's. And you're a vampire too, Mrs. Uh, Win. I-, I do beg your pardon. Uh, Countess, not far out, oh? He inquired politely. The Countess smiled. My vert, yes, she said. "'By marriage,' said Arthur. "'Can you do that? I thought you had to be bitten,' said Wendell. The voice under the chair sniggered. "'I don't see why I should have to go round biting my wife after thirty years of marriage, and that's flat,' said the Count. "'Every woman should share her husband's hobbies,' said Doreen. "'It is what keeps a marriage interesting.' "'Who wants an interesting marriage? "'I never said I wanted an interesting marriage. "'That's what's wrong with people today, "'expecting things like marriage to be interesting. "'And it's not a hobby, anyway,' moaned Arthur. "'This vampiring's not all it's cracked up to be, you know. "'Can't go out in daylight, can't eat garlic, "'can't have a decent shave.' "'Why can't you have a decent?' uh, "'Windle began. "'Can't use a mirror,' said Arthur. I thought the turning into a bat bit would be interesting, but the owls round here are murder. And as for the, you know, with the blood, well, his voice trailed off. Arthur's never been very good at meeting people, said Doreen. And the worst part is having to wear evening dress the whole time, said Arthur. He gave Doreen a sideways glance. I'm sure it's not really compulsory. It is very important to maintain standards, said Doreen. Doreen, in addition to her here one minute and gone the next vampire accent, had decided to complement Arthur's evening dress with what she considered appropriate for a female vampire. Figure-hugging black dress, long dark hair cut into a widow's peak, and very pallid make-up. Nature had designed her to be small and plump with frizzy hair and a hearty complexion. There were definite signs of conflict. I should have stayed in that coffin, said Arthur. Oh no, said Mr. Shu. That's taking the easy way out. The movement needs people like you, Arthur. We had to set an example. Remember our motto. Which motto is that, Reg? Said Lupine wearily. We have so many. Undead, yes. Unperson, no, Reg said. You see, he means well, said Lupine after the meeting had broken up. He and Windle were walking back through the grey dawn. The not-far-outos had left early to be back home before daylight, heaped even more troubles on Arthur, and Mr. Shue had gone off, he said, to address a meeting. He goes down to the cemetery behind the Temple of Small Gods and shouts, Lupine explained. He calls it consciousness-raising, but I don't reckon he's on to much of a certainty. Who was that, er, uh, under the chair, said Windle. That was Schleppel, said Lupine. We think he's a bogeyman. Are bogeymen undead? He won't say. You've never seen him. I thought bogeymen hid under things and uh, behind things and then sort of leapt out at people. He's all right on the hiding. I don't think he likes the leaping out, said Lupine. Windle thought about this. An agrophobic bogeyman seemed to complete the full set. Fancy that, he said vaguely. "'We only go along to the club to keep Reg happy,' said Lupine. "'Doreen said it would break his heart if we stopped. "'You know the worst bit?' "'Go on,' said Windle. "'Sometimes he brings a guitar along and makes us sing songs like "'The Streets of Arkmore Pork and We Shall Overcome. It's terrible.' "'A song which, in various languages, is common on every known world in the multiverse.' It is always sung by the same people, viz, the people who, when they grow up, will be the people who the next generation sing, We Shall Overcome, at. Can't sing, eh? said Windle. Sing? Never mind sing. Have you ever seen a zombie trying to play a guitar? It's helping him find his fingers afterwards that's so embarrassing. Lupine sighed. By the way, Sister Droll is a ghoul. If she offers you any of her meat patties, don't accept. Windle remembered a vague shy old lady in a shapeless grey dress. Oh dear, he said. You mean she makes them out of human flesh? What? Oh no, she just can't cook very well. Oh. And Brother Ixolite is probably the only banshee in the world with a speech impediment, so instead of sitting on roofs and screaming when people are about to die, he just writes them a note and slips it under the door. Windle recalled a long, sad face. He gave me one, too. We try to encourage him, said Lupine. He's very self-conscious. His arm shot out and flung Windle against a wall. Quiet! What? Lupine's ears swivelled, his nostrils flared. Motioning Windle to remain where he was, the Ware man slunk silently along the alley until he reached its junction with another, even smaller and nastier one. He paused for a moment and then thrust a hairy hand around the corner. There was a yelp. Lupine's hand came back holding a struggling man. Huge, hairy muscles moved under Lupine's torn shirt as the man was hoisted up to fang level. "'You were waiting to attack us, weren't you?' said Lupine. "'Who, me?' I could smell you, said Lupine evenly. i never, Lupine sighed. Wolves don't do this sort of thing, you know, he said. The man dangled. Hey, is that a fact, he said. It's all head-on combat, fang against fang, claw against claw, said Lupine. You don't find wolves lurking behind rocks ready to mug a passing badger? Get away. Would you like me to tear your throat out? The man stared eye to yellow eye. He estimated his chances against a seven-foot man with teeth like that. Do do I get a choice, he said. My friend here, said Lupine, indicating Windle, is a zombie. Well, I I don't know about actual uh, zombie. I, I think you have to eat some sort of fish and root to be a zombie. And you know what zombies do to people, don't you? The man tried to nod, even though Lupine's fist was right under his neck. He managed. Now he's going to take a very good look at you, and if he ever sees you again, I-, I say, hang on," murmured Windle. "He'll come after you, won't you, Windle? Eh? Um. Oh, oh, yes, yes, that's right, like a shot," said Windle unhappily. Now, now, run along. There's a good chap. Okay. Uh, okay. "'said the prospective mugger. "'He was thinking, "'It's eyes like him it.' "'Lupine let go. "'The man hit the cobbles, "'gave Windle one last terrified glance "'and ran for it. Uh, "'What do zombies do to people?' "'said Windle. "'I suppose I had better know.' "'They tear them apart "'like a sheet of dry paper,' "'said Lupine. "'Oh, right,' said Windle. "'They strolled on in silence.' Wendell was thinking, why me? Hundreds of people must die in this city every day. I bet they don't have this trouble. They just shut their eyes and wake up being born as someone else or in some sort of heaven or, I suppose, possibly some sort of hell. Or they go and feast with the gods in their hall, which has never seemed a particularly great idea. Gods are all right in their way, but not the kind of people a decent man would want to have a meal with. The Yen Buddhists think you just become very rich. Some of the Klatchian religions say you go to a lovely garden full of young women, which doesn't sound very religious to me. Windle found himself wondering how you applied for Klatchian nationality after death. And at that moment, the cobblestones came up to meet him. This is usually a poetic way of saying that someone fell flat on their face. In this case, the cobblestones really came up to meet him. They fountained up, circled silently in the air above the alley for a moment, and then dropped like stones. Windle stared at them. So did Lupine. That's something you don't often see, said the Wareman. man after a while. I don't think I've ever seen stones flying before. Or oh, dropping like stones, said Windle. He nudged one with the toe of his boot. It seemed perfectly happy with the role gravity had chosen for it. You're a wizard. Uh, were a wizard, said Windle. You were a wizard. What caused all that? ''I think it was probably an... an inexplicable phenomenon,'' said Windle. ''There's a lot of them about for some reason. I wish I knew why.'' He prodded a stone again. It showed no inclination to move. ''I'd better be getting along,'' said Lupine. ''What's it like being a ware man said Windle. Lupine shrugged. ''Lonely,'' he said. ''Hm?'' Mm-hmm. You don't fit in, you see. When I'm a wolf, I remember what it's like to be a man, and vice versa. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, right, when I'm wolf-shaped, I run into the hills in the winter, you know, when there's a crescent moon in the sky, and a crust on the snow, and the hills go on forever. And the other wolves, well, they feel what it's like, of course, but they don't know like I do. To feel and know at the same time. No one else knows what that's like. No one else in the whole world could know what that's like. That's the bad part, knowing there's no one else. Windle became aware of teetering on the edge of a pit of sorrows. He never knew what to say in moments like this. Lupine brightened up. Come to that. What's it like being a zombie? It's, um, it's okay. It's not too bad. Lupine nodded. See you around, he said, and strode off. The streets were beginning to fill up as the population of Ankh-Morpork began its informal shift change between the night people and the day people. All of them avoided Windle. People didn't bump into a zombie if they could help it. He reached the university gates, which were now open, and made his way to his bedroom. He'd need money if he was moving out. He'd saved quite a lot over the years. Had he made a will? He'd been fairly confused the past ten years or so. He might have made one. Had he been confused enough to leave all his money to himself? He hoped so. There'd been practically no known cases of anyone successfully challenging their own will. He levered up the floorboard by the end of his bed and lifted out a bag of coins. He remembered he'd been saving up for his old age. There was his diary. It was a five-year diary, he recalled. So in a technical sense, Windle had wasted about, he did a quick calculation, yes, about three-fifths of his money. Or more, when you came to think about it. After all, there wasn't much on the pages. Wendell hadn't done anything worth writing down for years, or at least anything he'd been able to remember by the evening. There were just phases of the moon, lists of religious festivals, and the occasional suite stuck to a page. There was something else down there under the floor, too. He fumbled around in the dusty space and found a couple of smooth spheres. He pulled them out and stared at them, mystified. He shook them and watched the tiny snowfalls. He read the writing, noting how it wasn't so much writing as a drawing of writing. He reached down and picked up the third object. It was a little bent metal wheel. Just one little metal wheel. And beside it a broken sphere. Windle stared at them. Of course, he'd been a bit non-compass mentis in his last thirty years or so, and maybe he'd worn his underwear outside his clothes and dribbled a bit. But he'd collected souvenirs and little wheels. There was a cough behind him. Windle dropped the mysterious object back into the hole and looked around. The room was empty, but there seemed to be a shadow behind the open door. Hello, he said. A deep, rumbling, but very diffident voice said, It's only me, Mr. Poons. Windle wrinkled his forehead with the effort of recollection. Schleppel, he said. That's right. The bogeyman? That's right. Behind my door? That's right. Why? It's a friendly door. Windle walked over to the door and gingerly shut it. There was nothing behind it but old plaster, although he did fancy that he felt an air movement. I'm under the bed now, Mr. Poons, said Schleppel's voice from Yes Under the Bed. You don't mind, do you? Well, no, I I suppose not. But shouldn't you be in a closet somewhere? That's where bogeymen used to hide when I was a lad. A good closet is hard to find, Mr. Poons. Windle sighed. All right, the underside of the bed's yours. Make yourself at home, or whatever. I'd prefer going back to lurking behind the door, Mr. Poons, if it's all the same to you. Oh, all right. Do you mind shutting your eyes a moment? Windle obediently shut his eyes. There was another movement of air. You can look now, Mr. Poons. Windle opened his eyes. Gosh, said Schleppel's voice. You've even got a coat hook and everything behind here. Windle watched the brass knobs on the end of his bedstead unscrew themselves. A tremor shook the floor. What's going on, Schleppel? he said. Build-up of life-force, Mr. Poons. You mean, you know? Oh, yes. Hey, wow, there's a lock and a handle and a brass finger plate and everything behind here. What do you mean, a build-up of life-force? And the hinges, there's a really good rising butts here. Never had a door with... Schleppel. Just life-force, Mr. Poons. You know, it's a kind of force what you get in things that are alive. I thought you wizards knew about this sort of thing. Windlepoons opened his mouth to say something like, Of course we do, before proceeding diplomatically to find out what the hell the bogeyman was talking about, and then remembered that he didn't have to act like that now. That's what he would have done if he was alive, but despite what Red Shoe proclaimed, it was quite hard to be proud when you were dead. A bit stiff, perhaps, but not proud. Um, never heard of it he said. What's it building up for? Don't know. Very unseasonal. It ought to be dying down around now, said Schleppel. The floor shook again, then the loose floorboard that had concealed Windle's little fortune creaked and started to put out shoots. What do you mean, unseasonal, he said. You get a lot of it in the spring, said the voice from behind the door, shoving the daffodils up out of the ground and that kind of stuff. Never heard of it, said Windle, fascinated. I thought you wizards knew everything about everything. Windle looked at his wizarding hat. Burial and tunnelling had not been kind to it, but after more than a century of wear, it hadn't been the height of haute couture to start with. There's always something new to learn, he said. It was another dawn. Cyril the cockerel stirred on his perch. The chalked words glowed in the half-light. He concentrated. He took a deep breath. fod. Now that the memory problem was solved, there was only the dyslexia to worry about. Up in the high fields, the wind was strong and the sun was close and strong. Bill Dor strode back and forth through the stricken grass of the hillside like a shuttle across a green weave. He wondered if he'd ever felt wind and sunlight before. Yes, he'd felt them. He must have done. But he'd never experienced them like this. The way wind pushed at you, the way the sun made you hot, the way you could feel time passing, carrying you with it. There was a timid knocking at the barn door. Yes? Come on down here, Bill Doer. He climbed down in the darkness and opened the door cautiously. Miss Flitworth was shielding a candle with one hand. Um, she said. I am sorry. You can come into the house, if you like, for the evening, not for the night, of course. I mean, I don't like to think of you all alone out here of an evening, when I've got a fire and everything. Bill Dorr was no good at reading faces. It was a skill he'd never needed. He stared at Miss Flitworth's frozen, worried, pleading smile, like a baboon looking for meaning in the Rosetta Stone. Thank you, he said. She scuttled off. When he arrived at the house, she wasn't in the kitchen. He followed a rustling, scraping noise out into a narrow hallway and through a low doorway. Miss Flitworth was down on her hands and knees in the little room beyond, feverishly lighting the fire. She looked up, flustered, when he rapped politely on the open door. Hardly worth putting a match to it, for one, she mumbled by way of embarrassed explanation. Sit down. I'll make us some tea. Bill Dorr folded himself into one of the narrow chairs by the fire, and looked around the room. It was an unusual room. Whatever its functions were, being lived in wasn't apparently one of them. Whereas the kitchen was a sort of roofed-over outside space, and the hub of the farm's activities, this room resembled nothing so much as a mausoleum. Contrary to general belief, Bill Dorr wasn't very familiar with funeral decor. Deaths didn't normally take place in tombs, except in rare and unfortunate cases. The open air, the bottom of rivers, halfway down sharks, any amount of bedrooms, yes. Tombs? No. His business was the separation of the wheat germ of the soul from the chaff of the mortal body, and that was usually concluded long before any of the rites associated with, when you get right down to it, a reverential form of garbage disposal. But this room looked like the tombs of those kings who wanted to take it all with them. Bildor sat with his hands on his knees looking around. First, there were the ornaments, more teapots than one might think possible, china dogs with staring eyes, strange cake stands, miscellaneous statues and painted plates with cheery little messages on them, a present from quirm, long life and happiness. They covered every flat surface in a state of total democracy, so that a rather valuable antique silver candlestick was next to a bright-coloured china dog with a bone in its mouth and an expression of culpable idiocy. Pictures hid the walls. Most of them were painted in shades of mud and showed depressed cattle standing on wet moorland in a fog. In fact, the ornaments almost concealed the furniture. But this was no loss. Apart from two chairs groaning under the weight of accumulated antimacassars, the rest of the furniture seemed to have no use whatsoever apart from supporting ornaments. There were spindly tables everywhere. The floor was layered in rag rugs. Someone had really liked making rag rugs. And above all, and around all, and permeating all, was the smell. It smelled of long, dull afternoons. On a cloth-draped sideboard were two small wooden chests flanking a larger one. They must be the famous boxes full of treasure, he thought. He became aware of ticking. There was a clock on the wall. Somebody had once had what they must have thought was the jolly idea of making a clock like an owl. When the pendulum swung, the owl's eyes went backwards and forwards in what the seriously starved of entertainment probably imagined was a humorous way. After a while, your own eyes started to oscillate in sympathy. Miss Flitworth bustled in with a loaded tray. There was a blur of activity as she performed the alchemical ceremony of making tea, buttering scones, arranging biscuits, hooking sugar tongs on the basin. She sat back. Then, as if she'd been in a state of repose for twenty minutes... She trilled slightly breathlessly. Well, isn't this nice? Yes, Miss Flitworth. Don't have occasion to open up the parlour these days? No. Not since I lost me dad. For a moment, Bildore wondered if she'd lost the late Mr. Flitworth in the parlour. Perhaps he'd taken a wrong turning among the ornaments. Then he recalled the funny little ways humans put things. Ah, he used to sit in that very chair reading the almanac. Bildor searched his memory. A tall man, he ventured, with a moustache, missing the tip of the little finger on his left hand. Miss Flitworth stared at him over the top of her cup. You knew him, she said. I think I met him once. "'He never mentioned you,' said Miss Flitworth archly. "'Not by name. "'Not as Bill "'I don't think he would have mentioned me,' said Bill slowly. "'It's all right,' said Miss Flitworth. "'I know all about it. "'Dad used to do a bit of smuggling too. "'Well, this isn't a big farm. "'It's not what you'd call a living. "'He always said a body has to do what it can. "'I expect you were in his line of business. "'I've been watching you.' That was your business right enough. Bildor thought deeply. General transportation, he said. That sounds like it, yes. Have you got any family, Bill? A daughter. That's nice. I'm afraid we've lost touch. Oh, that's a shame, said Miss Flitworth, and sounded as though she meant it. We used to have some good times in here in the old days. That was when my young man was alive of course. You have a son, said Bill who was losing track. She gave him a sharp look. I invite you to think hard about the word miss, she said. We take things like that seriously in these parts. My apologies. No, Rufus was his name. He was a smuggler like dad, not as good though. I got to admit that. He was more artistic. "'He used to give me all sorts of things from foreign parts, you know, "'bits of jewellery and such like. "'And we used to go dancing. "'He had very good calves, I remember. "'I like to see good legs on a man.' "'She stared at the fire for a while. "'See, he never come back one day, "'just before we were going to be wed. "'Dad said he never should have tried to run the mountain that close to winter, "'but I know he wanted to do it so as he could bring me a proper present, "'and he wanted to make some money and impress Dad.' Because Dad was against, she picked up the poker and gave the fire a more ferocious jab than it deserved. Anyway, some folks said he'd ran away to Fairfree or Ankmore Moorpork or somewhere, but I know he wouldn't have done something like that. The penetrating look she gave Bill Doer nailed him to the chair. What do you think, Bill Doer? She said sharply. He felt quite proud of himself for spotting the question within the question, Miss Flitworth. The mountains can be very treacherous in the winter. She looked relieved. That's what I've always said, she said. And do you know what, Bill Dor? You know what I thought? No, Miss Flitworth. It was the day before we were going to be wed, like I said. And then one of his pack ponies came by by itself. And then the men went and found the avalanche. And you know what I thought? I thought, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. "'Terrible, isn't it? "'Oh, I thought other things afterwards, naturally. "'But the first thing was that the world shouldn't act "'as if it was some kind of a book. "'Isn't that a terrible thing to have thought?' "'I myself have never trusted drama, Miss Flitworth.' "'She wasn't really listening. "'And I thought, what life expects me to do now "'is moon around the place in a wedding dress for years "'and go completely do-lally. "'That's what it wants me to do. "'Oh, yes.' So I put the dress in the rag bag, and we still invited everyone to the wedding breakfast because it's a crime to let good food go to waste. She attacked the fire again, and then gave him another megawatt stare. I think it's always very important to see what's really real and what isn't, don't you? Miss Flitworth? Yes? Do you mind if I stop the clock? She glanced up at the boggle-eyed owl. What? Oh, why? Why? "'I am afraid it gets on my nerves.' "'It's not very loud, is it?' "'Bill Dorr wanted to say that every tick "'was like the hammering of iron clubs on bronze pillars.' "'It's just rather annoying, Miss Flitworth.' "'Well, stop it if you want to, I'm sure. "'I only keep it wound up for the company.' "'Bill Dorr got up, thankfully, "'stepped gingerly through the forest of ornaments "'and grabbed the pinecone-shaped pendulum.' The wooden owl glared at him and the ticking stopped, at least in the realm of common sound. He was aware that elsewhere the pounding of time continued nonetheless. How could people endure it? They allowed time in their houses as though it was a friend. He sat down again. Miss Flitworth had started to knit ferociously. The fire rustled in the grate. Bill Bildor leaned back in the chair and stared at the ceiling. Your horse enjoying himself? Pardon. "'Your horse seems to be enjoying himself in the meadow,' prompted Miss Flitworth. "'Oh, yes.' "'Running around as if he's never seen grass before.' "'He likes grass.' "'And you like animals, I can tell,' Bildor nodded. "'His reserves of small talk, never very liquid, had dried up. "'He sat silently for the next couple of hours, "'hands gripping the arms of the chair, "'until Miss Flitworth announced that she was going to bed. "'Then he went back to the barn and slept.' Bill Dor hadn't been aware of it coming, but there it was. A grey figure, floating in the darkness of the barn. Somehow it had got hold of the golden timer. It told him, Bill Dor, there has been a mistake. The glass shattered. Fine golden seconds glittered in the air for a moment, and then settled. It told him, Return. You have work to do. There has been a mistake. The figure faded. Bildor nodded. Of course there had been a mistake. Anyone could see that there had been a mistake. He'd known all along that it had been a mistake. He tossed the overalls in a corner and took up the robe of absolute blackness. Well, it had been an experience, and he had to admit one that he didn't want to relive. He felt as though a huge weight had been removed. Was that what it was really like to be alive? The feeling of darkness dragging you forward? How could they live with it? And yet they did, and even seemed to find enjoyment in it. When surely the only sensible course would be to despair. Amazing. To feel you were a tiny living thing sandwiched between two cliffs of darkness. How could they stand to be alive? Obviously, it was something you had to be born to. Death saddled his horse and rode out and up over the fields. The corn rippled far below like the sea. Miss Flitworth would have to find someone else to help her gather in the harvest. That was odd. There was a feeling there. Regret? Was that it? But it was Bill Dorr's feeling, and Bill Dor was dead. Had never lived. He was his old self again, safe, where there were no feelings and no regrets. Never any regrets. And now he was in his study, and that was odd, because he couldn't quite remember how he'd got there. One minute on horseback, the next in the study, with its ledgers and timers and instruments. And it was bigger than he remembered. The walls lurked on the edge of sight. That was Bill Dawes doing. Of course it would seem big to Bill Dawes. And there was probably just a bit of him still hanging on. The thing to do was keep busy, throw himself into his work. There were already some lifetimers on his desk. He didn't remember putting them there, but that didn't matter. The important thing was to get on with the job. He picked up the nearest one and read the name. Lods of food'll walk!' Miss Flitworth sat up in bed. On the edge of dreams, she'd heard another noise, which must have woken the cockerel. She fiddled with a match until she got a candle light, and then felt under the bed and her fingers found the hilt of a cutlass that had been much employed by the late Mr. Flitworth during his business trips across the mountains. She hurried down the creaking stairs and out into the chill of the dawn. She hesitated at the barn door and then pulled it open just enough to step inside. Mr. Dor? There was a rustle in the hay, and then an alert silence. Miss Flitworth? Did you call out? I'm sure I heard someone shout my name. There was another rustle, and Bill Dor's head appeared over the edge of the loft. Miss Flitworth? Yes, who did you expect? Are you all right? Uh, yes. Yes, I believe so. Are you sure you're all right? You woke up Cyril. "'Yes. Yes, it was just... I thought that... yes.' "'She blew out the candle. There was already enough pre-dawn light to see by. "'Well, if you're sure, now I'm up, I may as well put the porridge on.' Bill "'Bildor lay back on the hay until he felt he could trust his legs to carry him, "'and then climbed down and tottered across the yard to the farmhouse. "'He said nothing while she ladled porridge into a bowl in front of him "'and drowned it with cream.' Finally, he couldn't contain himself any longer. He didn't know how to ask the questions, but he really needed the answers. Miss Flitworth? Yes. What is it in the night when you see things, but they are not the real thing? She stood porridge-pot in one hand and ladle in the other. Oh, you mean dreaming, she said. Is that what dreaming is? Don't you dream? I thought everyone dreamed. About things that are going to happen? No, that's premonition, that is. I've never believed in em myself. You're not telling me you don't know what dreams are? No, no, of course not. What's worrying you, Bill? I suddenly know that we are going to die. She watched him thoughtfully. Well, so does everyone, she said, and that's what you've been dreaming about, is it? Everyone feels like this sometimes. I wouldn't worry about it if I were you. The best thing to do is keep busy and act cheerful, I always say. But we will come to an end. Oh, I don't know about that, said Miss Flitworth. It all depends on what kind of life you've led, I suppose. I'm sorry? Are you a religious man? You mean that what happens to you when you die is what you believe will happen? It would be nice if that was the case, wouldn't it? "'she said brightly. "'But you see, I know what I believe. "'I believe nothing. "'We are gloomy this morning, aren't we?' "'said Miss Flitworth. "'Best thing you could do right now "'is finish off that porridge. "'It's good for you. "'They say it builds healthy bones.' "'Bill Daw looked down at the bowl. "'Can I have some more?' "'Bill Dor spent the morning chopping wood. "'It was pleasantly monotonous.' Get tired. That was important. He must have slept before last night, but he must have been so tired that he didn't dream. And he was determined not to dream again. The axe rose and fell on the logs like clockwork. No, not like clockwork. Miss Flitworth had several pots on the stove when he came in. It smells good, Bill volunteered. He reached for a wobbling pot lid. Miss Flitworth spun around. Don't touch it. You don't want that stuff. It's for the rats. "'Do rats not feed themselves?' "'You bet they do. "'That's why we're going to give them a little extra something before the harvest. "'A few dollops of this around the holes, and no more rats.' "'It took a little while for Bill Dorr to put two and two together, "'but when this took place, it was like megaliths mating.' "'This is poison?' "'Essence of spickle mixed with oatmeal never fails.' "'And they die?' "'instantly, straight over and legs in the air. "'We're having bread and cheese,' she added. "'I ain't doing big cooking twice in one day, "'and we're having chicken tonight.' "'Talking of chicken, in fact. "'Come on.' "'She took a cleaver off the rack and went out into the yard. Cyril the cockerel eyed her suspiciously from the top of the midden. "'His harem of fat and rather elderly hens, "'who had been scratching up the dust, "'bounded unsteadily towards Miss Flitworth "'in the broken knicker-elastic run of hens everywhere.' She reached down quickly and picked one up. It regarded Bill Dor with bright, stupid eyes. "'Do you know how to pluck a chicken?' said Miss Flitworth. Bill looked from her to the hen. "'But we feed them,' he said helplessly. "'That's right, and then they feed us. This one's been off lay for months. That's how it goes in the chicken world. Mr. Flitworth used to wring their necks, but I never got the knack of that.' The cleaver's messy, and they run around a bit afterwards, but they did all right, and they know it. Bildor considered his options. The chicken had focused one beady eye on him. Chickens are a lot more stupid than humans, and don't have the sophisticated mental filters that prevent them seeing what is truly there. It knew where it was, and who it was looking at. He looked into its small and simple life, and saw the last few seconds pouring away. He'd never killed. He'd taken life, but only when it was finished with there was a difference between theft and stealing by finding. "'Not the cleaver,' he said wearily. "'Give me the chicken.' He turned his back for a moment, then handed the limp body to Miss Flitworth. "'Well done,' she said, and went back to the kitchen. Bill Dor felt Cyril's accusing gaze on him. He opened his hand. A tiny spot of light hovered over his palm. He blew on it gently, and it faded away. After lunch, they put down the rat poison— He felt like a murderer. A lot of rats died. Down in the runs under the barn, in the deepest one, one tunnelled long ago by long-forgotten ancestral rodents, something appeared in the darkness. It seemed to have difficulty deciding what shape it was going to be. It began as a lump of highly suspicious cheese. This didn't seem to work. Then it tried something that looked very much like a small hungry terrier. This was also rejected. For a moment it was a steel-jawed trap, This was clearly unsuitable. It cast around for fresh ideas and much to its surprise one arrived smoothly as if travelling from no distance at all. Not so much a shape as a memory of a shape. It tried and found that while totally wrong for the job, in some deeply satisfying way it was the only shape it could possibly be. It went to work. That evening the men were practising archery on the green. Bill Dorr had carefully ensured a local reputation as the worst bowman in the entire history of toxophily. It had never occurred to anyone that putting arrows through the hats of bystanders behind him must logically take a lot more skill than merely sending them through a quite large target a mere fifty yards away. It was amazing how many friends you could make by being bad at things, provided you were bad enough to be funny. So he was allowed to sit on a bench outside the inn with the old men. Next door, sparks poured from the chimney of the village smithy and spiralled up into the dusk. There was a ferocious hammering from behind its closed doors. Bill Dorr wondered why the smithy was always shut. Most smiths worked with the doors open so that their forge became an unofficial village meeting room. This one was keen on his work. "'Hello, Skellington,' he swivelled round. The small child of the house was watching him with the most penetrating gaze he'd ever seen. You are a skellington, aren't you? She said. I can tell because of the bones. You are mistaken, small child. You are. People turn into skellingtons when they're dead. They're not supposed to walk around afterwards. Ha, ha, ha. Will you hark at the child? Why are you walking around then? Bildor looked at the old men. They appeared engrossed in the sport. I'll tell you what. He said desperately If you will go away I will give you a half penny I've got a skeleton mask For when we go trickle-treating On soul cake night She said It's made of paper You get given sweets Bildor made the mistake Millions of people had tried before With small children In slightly similar circumstances He resorted to reason Look, he said If I was really a skeleton, little girl, I'm sure these old gentlemen here would have something to say about it. She regarded the old man at the other end of the bench. They're nearly skeletons anyway, she said. I shouldn't think they'd want to see another one. He gave in. I have to admit that you are right on that point. Why don't you fall to bits? I don't know. I never have. I've seen skeletons of birds and things, and they fall to bits. Perhaps it is because they are what something was, whereas this is what I am. The apothecary who does medicine over in Chambly's got a skeleton on a hook with all wire to hold the bones together, said the child, with the air of one imparting information gained after diligent research. I don't have wires. There's a difference between alive skeletons and dead ones. Yes It's a dead skellington he's got then, is it? Yes What was inside someone? Yes Ugh, yuck The child stared distantly at the landscape for a while and then said I've got new socks Yes You can look if you like A grubby foot was extended for inspection Well, well Fancy that, new socks my mum knitted them out of sheep. My word. The horizon was given another inspection. Do know, she said, do you know, it's Friday. Yes. I found a spoon. Bill Dor found he was waiting expectantly. He was not familiar with people who had an attention span of less than three seconds. You work along at Miss Fitworth's? Yes. My dad says you've got your feet properly under the table there. Bill Dorr couldn't think of an answer to this because he didn't know what it meant. It was one of those many flat statements humans made that were really just a disguise for something more subtle, which was often conveyed merely by the tone of voice or a look in the eyes, neither of which was being done by the child. My dad says she said she's got boxes of treasure. Has she? I've got tuppence. My goodness. So? They both looked up as Mrs Lifton appeared on the doorstep. Bedtime for you. Stop worrying, Mr. Daw. Oh, I assure you, she is not. Say goodnight now. How do skellingtons go to sleep? They can't close their eyes, because... He heard their voices muffled inside the inn. You mustn't call Mr. Daw that just because he's... he's very... he's very thin. It's all right. He's not the dead sort. Mrs. Lifton's voice had the familiar worried tones of someone who can't bring themselves to believe the evidence of their own eyes. Perhaps he's just been very ill. I should think he's just about been as ill as he can be ever. Bill Dor walked back home thoughtfully. There was a light on in the farmhouse kitchen, but he went straight to the barn, climbed the ladder to the hayloft and lay down. He could put off dreaming, but he couldn't escape remembering. He stared at the darkness. After a while he was aware of the pattering of feet. He turned. A stream of pale rat-shaped ghosts... "'skipped along the roof beam above his head, "'fading as they ran, "'so that soon there was nothing but the sound of the scampering. "'They were followed by a shape. "'It was about six inches high, it wore a black robe, "'it held a small scythe in one skeletal paw, "'a bone-white nose with brittle grey whiskers "'protruded from the shadowy hood. "'Bill Dorr reached out and picked it up. "'It didn't resist, but stood on the palm of his hand "'and eyed him as one professional to another.' Bildor said, and you are? The Death of Rats nodded. Squeak. I remember, said Bildor, when you were a part of me. The Death of Rats squeaked again. Bildor fumbled in the pockets of his overall. He'd put some of his lunch in there. Ah, yes. I expect, he said, that you could murder a piece of cheese. The Death of Rats took it graciously. Bildor remembered visiting an old man once, only once, who had spent his entire life locked in a cell in a tower for some alleged crime or other and had tamed little birds for company during his life sentence. They crept on his bedding and ate his food, but he tolerated them and smiled at their flight in and out of the high-barred windows. Death had wondered at the time why anyone would do something like that. I won't delay you, he said. I expect you've got things to do, rats to see. "'I know how it is.' "'And now he understood. "'He put the figure back on the beam "'and lay down in the hay. "'Drop in any time you're passing.' "'Bildor stared at the darkness again. "'Sleep. "'He could feel her prowling around, "'sleep with a pocket full of dreams. "'He lay in the darkness and fought back. "'Miss Flitworth's shouting jolted him upright.' and to his momentary relief, still went on. The barn door slammed open. "'Bill, come down, quick!' He swung his legs onto the ladder. "'What is happening, Miss Flitworth?' "'Something's on fire!' They ran across the yard and out onto the road. The sky over the village was red. "'Come on!' "'But it is not our fire. "'It's going to be everyone's that spreads like crazy on thatch!' They reached the apology for a town square. The inn was already well alight, the thatch roaring starwards in a million twisting sparks." "'Look at everyone standing around!' snarled Miss Flitworth. "'There's the pump-buckets are everywhere. Why don't people think?' There was a scuffle a little way away as a couple of his customers tried to stop Lifton from running into the building. He was screaming at them. "'The girl's still in there!' said Miss Flitworth. "'Is that what he said?' "'Yes.' Flames curtained every upper window. "'There's got to be some way,' said Miss Flitworth. "'Maybe we could find a ladder.' "'We should not.' "'What?' "'We've got to try. We can't leave people in there.' "'You don't understand,' said Bildor. "'To tinker with the fate of one individual could destroy the whole world.' "'Miss Flitworth looked at him as if he'd gone mad. "'What kind of garbage is that?' "'I mean that there is a time for everyone to die.' "'She stared. "'Then she drew her hand back and gave him a ringing slap across the face. "'He was harder than she'd expected. "'She yelped and sucked at her knuckles.' You leave my farm tonight, Mr. Bill Dorr, she growled. Understand? Then she turned on her heel and ran towards the pump. Some of the men had brought long hooks to drag the burning thatch off the roof. Miss Flitworth organised a team to get a ladder up to one of the bedroom windows, but by the time a man was persuaded to climb it behind the steaming protection of a damp blanket, the top of the ladder was already smouldering. Bill Dor watched the flames. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the golden timer. The firelight glowed redly on the glass. He put it away again. Part of the roof fell in. Squeak. Bildor looked down. A small robed figure marched between his legs and strutted into the flaming doorway. Someone was yelling something about barrels of brandy. Bildor reached back into his pocket and took out the timer again. Its hissing drowned out the roar of the flames. The future flowed into the past, and there was a lot more past than there was future, but he was struck by the fact that what it flowed through all the time was now. He replaced it carefully. Death knew that to tinker with the fate of one individual could destroy the whole world. He knew this. The knowledge was built into him. To build door, he realised, it was so much horse elbows. Oh, damn, he said, and walked into the fire. Um, It's me, librarian. Said Windle, trying to shout through the keyhole. Windle Poons. He tried hammering some more. Why won't he answer? Don't know, said a voice behind him. Schleppel? Yes, Mr. Poons. Why are you behind me? I've got to be behind something, Mr. Poons. That's what being a bogeyman is all about. Librarian? said Windle, hammering some more. Oook, why won't you let me in? Oook, but I need to look something up. Oook, Well, yes, I am. What's that got to do with it? That's, that that's unfair. What's he saying, Mr. Poons? He won't let me in because I'm dead. That's typical. That's the sort of thing Red Shoe is always going on about, you know. Is there anyone else that knows about life force? There's always Mrs. Cake, I suppose, but she's a bit weird. Who's Mrs. Cake? Then Windle realized what Schleppel had just said. Anyway, you're, you're a bogeyman. You never heard of Mrs. Cake? No. No. I don't suppose she's interested in magic. Anyway, Mr. Shoe says we shouldn't talk to her. She exploits dead people, he says. How? She's a medium. Well, more a small. Really? All right, let's let's go and see her. And uh, Schleppel? Yes? It's creepy feeling you standing behind me the whole time. I get very upset if I'm not behind something, Mr. Poons. Can't you... "'Lurk behind something else.' "'What do you suggest, Mr. Poons?' "'Windle thought about it. "'Yes, it might work,' he said quietly. "'If I can find a screwdriver.' "'Modo the gardener was on his knees mulching the dahlias "'when he heard a rhythmic scraping and thumping behind him, "'such as might be made by someone trying to move a heavy object. "'He turned his head. "'Evening, Mr. Poons. Still dead, I see?' Evening, Modo. You've got the place looking very nice. There's someone moving a door along behind you, Mr. Poons. Yes, I know. The door edged cautiously along the path. As it passed Modo, it pivoted awkwardly, as if whoever was carrying it was trying to keep as much behind it as possible. It's a kind of a security door, said Windle. He paused. There was something wrong. He couldn't quite be certain what it was, but there was suddenly a lot of wrongness about like hearing one note out of tune in an orchestra he audited the view in front of him what's that you're putting the weeds into he said modo glanced at the thing beside him good isn't it he said i found it by the compost heaps my wheelbarrow broke so i looked up and there i've never seen anything like it before said windle who'd want to make a big basket out of wire and those wheels don't look big enough "'But it pushes along well by the handle,' said Modo. "'I'm amazed that anyone would want to throw it away. "'Why would anyone want to throw away something like this, Mr. Poon's?' "'Windle stared at the trolley. "'He couldn't escape the feeling that it was watching him. "'He heard himself say, "'Maybe it got there by itself.' "'That's right, Mr. Poon's. "'It wanted a bit of peace, I expect,' said Modo. "'You are a one.' Yes, said Windle unhappily. It rather looks that way. He stepped out into the city, aware of the scraping and thumping of the door behind him. If someone had told me a month ago, he thought, that a few days after I died I'd be walking along the road followed by a bashful bogeyman hiding behind the door, why, I'd have laughed at them. No, I wouldn't. I'd have said, eh, and what, and speak up, and wouldn't have understood anyway. Beside him someone barked. A dog was watching him. It was a very large dog. In fact, the only reason it could be called a dog and not a wolf was that everyone knew you didn't get wolves in cities. It winked. Windle thought, no full moon last night. Lupine, he ventured. The dog nodded. Can you talk? The dog shook its head. So what do you do now? Lupine shrugged. Want to come with me? there was another shrug that almost vocalised the thought, why not, what else have I got to do? If someone had told me a month ago, Wendell thought, that a few days after I died i would be walking along the road, followed by a bashful bogeyman hiding behind a door, and accompanied by a kind of negative version of a werewolf, why, I probably would have laughed at them, after they'd repeated themselves a few times, of course, in a loud voice. The death of rats rounded up the last of his clients, many of whom had been in the thatch, and led the way through the flames towards wherever it was that good rats went. He was surprised to pass a burning figure forcing its way through the incandescent mess of collapsed beams and crumbling floorboards. As it mounted the blazing stairs, it removed something from the disintegrating remains of its clothing and held it carefully in its teeth. The death of rats did not wait to see what happened next. While it was in some respects as ancient as the first proto-rat, it was also less than a day old and still feeling its way as a death, and it was probably aware that a deep thumping noise that was making the building shake was the sound of brandy starting to boil in its barrels. The thing about boiling brandy is that it doesn't boil for long. The fireball dropped bits of the inn half a mile away. White hot flames erupted from the holes where the doors and windows had been. The walls exploded, burning rafters whirred overhead. Some buried themselves in neighbouring roofs, starting more fires. What was left was just an eye-watering glow and then little pools of shadow within the glow. They moved and ran together and formed the shape of a tall figure striding forward, carrying something in front of it. It passed through the blistered crowd and trudged up the cool dark road towards the farm. The people picked themselves up and followed it, moving through the dusk like the tail of a dark comet. Bill Bildor climbed the stairs to Miss Flitworth's bedroom and laid the child on the bed. She said there was an apothecary somewhere near here. Miss Flitworth pushed her way through the crowd at the top of the stairs. There's one in Chambly, she said, but there's a witch over Lankaway. No witches, no magic. Send for him, and everyone else, go away. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't even a command. It was simply an irrefutable statement. Miss Flitworth waved her skinny arms at the people. Come on, come on, it's all over. Shoo, you're all in my bedroom. Go on, get out. How did he do it? said someone in the back of the crowd no one could have got out of there alive we saw it all blow up Bildor turned around slowly we hid he said in the cellar there see said Miss Flitworth in the cellar makes sense but the inn hasn't got the doubter began and stopped Bildor was glaring at him in the cellar he corrected himself yeah right (laughs) clever "'Very clever,' said Miss Flitworth. "'Now get along with a lot of you.' "'He heard her shoo them down the stairs and back into the night. "'The door slammed. "'He didn't hear her come back up the stairs "'with a bowl of cold water and a flannel. "'Miss Flitworth could walk lightly, too, when she had a mind to. "'She came in and shut the door behind her. "'Her parents'll want to see her,' she said. "'Her mum's in a faint, and Big Henry from the mill "'knocked her dad out when he tried to run into the flames. "'But they'll be here directly.' She bent down and ran the flannel over the girl's forehead. Where was she? She was hiding in a cupboard. From a fire? Bildor shrugged. I'm amazed you could find anyone in all that heat and smoke, she said. I suppose you could call it a knack. And not a mark on her. Bildor ignored the question in her voice. Did you send someone for the apothecary? Yes. He must not take anything away. What do you mean? Stay here when he comes. You must not take anything out of this room. That's silly. Why should he take anything? What would he want to take? It is very important. And now I must leave you. Where are you going? To the barn. There are things I must do. There may not be much time now. Miss Flitworth stared at the small figure on the bed. She felt far out of her depth, and all she could do was tread water. She just looks as if she's sleeping, she said helplessly. What's wrong with her? Bildor paused at the top of the stairs. She is living on borrowed time, he said. There was an old forge behind the barn. It hadn't been used for years, but now red and yellow light spilled out into the yard, pulsing like a heart. And like a heart, there was a regular thumping. With every crash, the light flared blue. Miss Flitworth sidled through the open doorway. If she was the kind of person who would swear, she would have sworn that she made no noise that could possibly be heard above the crackle of the fire and the hammering. But Bill Dor spun round in a half-crouch, holding a curved blade in front of him. It's me! He relaxed, or at least moved into a different level of tension. What the hell are you doing? He looked at the blade in his hands as if he was seeing it for the first time. I thought I would sharpen this scythe, Miss Flitworth. At one o'clock in the morning? He looked at it blankly. It's just as blunt at night, Miss Flitworth. Then he slammed it down on the anvil. And I can't sharpen it enough. I think perhaps the heat has got to you, she said, and reached out and took his arm. Besides, it looks sharp enough to... She began and paused. Her fingers moved on the bone of his arm. They pulled away for a moment and then closed again. Bildor shivered. Miss Flitworth didn't hesitate for long. In 75 years, she had dealt with wars, famine, innumerable sick animals, a couple of epidemics, and thousands of tiny everyday tragedies. A depressed skeleton wasn't even in the top ten worst things she had seen. So it is you, she said. Miss Flitworth, I... I always knew you would come one day. I think, perhaps, that... You know, I spent most of my life waiting for a night on a white charger, Miss Flitworth grinned. The joke's on me, eh? Bildor sat down on the anvil. The apothecary came, she said. He said he couldn't do anything. He said she was fine. We just couldn't wake her up. And you know, it took us ages to get her hand open. She had it closed so tightly. I said nothing was to be taken. It's all right, it's all right. We left her holding it. Good what was it my time sorry my time the time of my life it looks like an egg timer for very expensive eggs bildor looked surprised yes in a way i have given her some of my time how come you need time Every living thing needs time, and when it runs out, they die. When it runs out, she will die, and I will die too, in a few hours. But you can't. I can. It's hard to explain. Move up. What? I said move up, I want to sit down. Bill Dorr made space on the anvil. Miss Flitworth sat down. So, you're going to die, she said. "'Yes.' "'And you don't want to?' "'No.' "'Why not?' He looked at her as if she was mad. "'Because then there will be nothing. Because I won't exist.' "'Is that what happens for humans, too?' "'I don't think so. It's different for you. You have it all better organized. They both sat watching the fading glow of the coals in the forge. "'So what were you working on the scythe blade for?' said Miss Flitworth. I thought perhaps I could fight back. Has it ever worked? With you, I mean? Not usually. Some people challenge me to a game for their lives, you know. Do they ever win? No. Last year someone got three streets and all the utilities. What? What sort of a game is that? I don't recall. Exclusive possession, I think. I was the boot. ''Just a moment,'' said Miss Flitworth. ''If you are you, who will be coming for you?'' ''Death. Last night, this was pushed under the door.'' Death opened his hand to reveal a small, grubby piece of paper, on which Miss Flitworth could read, with some difficulty, the word, oo ee oo ee oo ee oo ee oo ee ''I have received the badly written note of the Banshee.'' Miss Flitworth looked at him with her head on one side, But, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but... The new death. Vildor picked up the blade. He will be terrible. The blade twisted in his hands. Blue light flickered along its edge. I will be the first. Miss Flitworth stared at the light as if fascinated. Exactly. How terrible. How terrible can you imagine? Oh... "'Exactly as terrible as that.' "'The blade tilted this way and that. "'And for the child, too,' said Miss Flitworth. "'Yes.' "'I don't reckon I owe you any favours, Mr. Dor. "'I don't reckon anyone in the whole world owes you any favours. "'You may be right. "'Mind you, life's got one or two things to answer for, too. "'Fair's fair.' "'I cannot say.' "'Miss Flitworth gave him another long, appraising look. "'There's a pretty good grindstone in the corner.' "'she said. "'I've used it. "'And there's an oilstone in the cupboard. "'I've used that too.' "'She thought she could hear a sound as the blade moved, "'a sort of faint whine of tensed air. "'And it's still not sharp enough?' "'Bildor sighed. "'It may never be sharp enough.' "'Come on, man, no sense in giving in,' said Miss Flitworth. "'Where there's life, eh?' "'Where there's life, eh? "'What?' There's hope Is there? Right enough. Bill Dor ran a bony finger along the edge. Hope? Got anything else left to try? Bill shook his head. He tried a number of emotions, but this was a new one. Could you fetch me a steel? End of CD four.